Recorded during the Play Gear 2020, this is the Andromeda Minute. Each week we get together to talk about the all-too-timely 1971 Robert Wise-directed techno-thriller, The Andromeda Strain, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And coming in this week as a host, uh, one of two from The Wilder Ride, I'm Alan Sanders. And I am Walt Murray, also from The Wilder Ride. And guys, we are back in the control room, or Delta 5, because I, I, I just keep wondering where Delta 4 and Delta... Are they on the different floors, and they just level 1, but Delta 5, and is it in... So many questions about the nomenclature, and... Uh, <sighs> and well, they, they couldn't they couldn't put us on three because then it would have been Delta, Delta, Delta. Can I help you, help you, help you? And that would have been. <laughs> I just assumed the others were colossal failures and they're just pits in the desert somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, kneeling down in the uh, in the dust and saying, I've been so loyal. And <laughs> let's try Delta four now. Yeah. Um, but uh, all this. Uh, I love I love seventies techno porn and this is uh, <laughs> they, they've they've got that great R you know RCA has its own little label because they donated the free uh, teleton but it's just basically a redressed uh, ASR thirty three which that was my that was my growing up learning computer that uh, we had in my high school we had a time sharing system with a with a local community college and we we'd have a, a big teletype thing and you gazik 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 on a Every time you type on a 1200 baud modem, and that was like, oh, this is the world, you know, this is the future, and that's that's what they're doing here. It's like this little altar of a of an ASR 33. <laughs> uh, you know, we actually had one of those too in, in in elementary school. The very first computer game I ever learned was very much on a similar teletype looking system like this, where you would use the little. Um, Headset. You put the handset in a little receptacle, and you dialed the modem. So yes. it was like a, a a block that had a, a a top and a bottom part that the 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 receiver and the and the speaker would go into from your your handset on the phone. Yeah, acoustic and, coupler. Yeah, yeah, an acoustic coupler. That's what you call it. And uh, we played uh, the Oregon Trail, and you would have <laughs> oh, to read. It would yeah. like print out. It'd be like you are now moving west. Blah blah blah. And then I was always horrible, and I hated that I didn't know a keyboard because it would say. Uh, you are being attacked. Type bang. I'm like, uh, B, A. And then we're like, you are dead. I'm like, I didn't know typed in B, A. I mean, come on. So, but that was, uh, that was my first experience with a computer game was a, was like Zork. It was all text and just, it was typing it out as we played. Well, you know, but in it, that game, I got dysentery three days in a row. I was like, <laughs> how can that happen? <laughs> like, how can anybody die three days in a row in this game from the same stupid disease? But it, it did teach you history that the, the people on the Oregon Trail died because uh, they had bad typing skills. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly right. right. <laughs> you, 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 you fell asleep in typing class, and this is what happens. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, I just never forget that. It was like, type bang. Uh, okay, <laughs> B-A. <laughs> Our kids today, they'd be like, you had to type? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we also had things called books where we used our imagination. <laughs> sometimes sometimes we had a question and we, didn't, we just kind of wondered what the answer was. <laughs> <laughs> no magic box. I couldn't yeah. go to anything and ask the question. I'm still that way. I still get too lazy to even pick up my phone and go, hey, Siri, what's the answer to this? <laughs> hey, you know, I know we uh, we didn't really get into a, a lot of the uh, quirky dialogue toward the end of last episode, but can I say one thing about the, the sure. transition, the very last line that this guy has, because I know we're going to talk about this sergeant oh. and a bit of his attitude, maybe. <laughs> but one of the lines he has, and maybe it's just because I just got done a, a few weeks back watching the documentary, uh, uh, 
Never, uh, uh, Never Surrender about the making of Galaxy oh, right. Quest. Yeah, yeah, great. And when great he movie. says that line about I've got one job, and I'm thinking that's exactly what <laughs> yeah. Sigourney Weaver. I have that's one right. job on this ship. It's stupid, but that's mine, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh, he is he is the world's angriest NCO, and there are you know there are lots of en- angry NCOs in every movie, but boy oh boy. He, you know, this he's talking to Dr. Jeremy Stone, who is the father of wildfire. This is like imagine imagine you work in Huntsville where, you know, they're building rockets and basically the guy at the reception desk starts bad mouthing Werner von Braun. And, you know, it, it, he, he does not realize his place in the hierarchy of this thing. But uh, well, and, and there might have been some justification for bad mouthing von Braun. But not this guy. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> you know, this guy's not a former Nazi. He hasn't yeah, built but, rockets well, to blow up London. I mean, yeah. Well, there there is a, there is a subtext in this movie that doesn't quite, quite it doesn't play up as much as it did in the book. But I mean, there is a possibility that Stone knew that uh, the government was collecting alien uh, microbes for um, bio warfare. So oh. he he might have he might have dirty dirt under his fingernails. I'm not you know I I I don't know how I feel about Stone in this movie, but he's he's dressed up a little bit nicer in this, but he is um, he's not all he's not an angel. Um, but, well, my problem with this though, regardless of regardless, I mean he could be one of the most corrupt politicians visiting this facility. The fact of the matter is, just because he's not military. He's, he's acting in a capacity that the military knows he's an expert. And so everyone is going to treat that civilian as if they're upper brass. They're supposed to, right? He's a dignitary on site. So I kept thinking the whole time I'm watching this minute, what's the point? Why are we watching him explain? Is it just to do it in a funny way, All how it's all automated? Because I walked away going, that guy needs to be slapped. Yeah, I mean, he needs to... <laughs> He needs to be the guy that, you know, up topside opening the gate for everybody else and eating a sandwich out on the barley field. But, uh, yeah, I, I, was, I, I couldn't figure out. This seems like, remember, this is 1971. It's Vietnam. So he's got a stateside job in a basement with air conditioning. And uh, how, you know, bad-mouthing uh, one of the top brass uh, showing up, it does not seem like a great career move for him. Uh, and then the use of the word dingling, I get it. It's a, it's a, it's the use of like that. We're, we're creating the the not the mnemonic. Was it called the, uh, the the onomatopoeia? The onomatopoeia, yeah. But the fact is, you also use it for something stupid. And I almost got the sense that this is beneath me. I'm a glorified computer watcher. I listen for a bell, dingling. You know, I think is is that are we supposed to get the angst of what it is to work here because nothing ever happens until now? Like this has been. One of those grand giant facilities that has all this technology and all this cool stuff, and it's yet to be used because it's never been put into action. Yeah, I, I would think that I, I would think that would have had dry runs. They would have had all kinds of you know all kinds of uh, tests and things. And I don't think it was that much of a need to know that all these people wouldn't understand that. Hey, we just brought in two people that were sick from a town that was dead. I, I don't know how much he, I mean, I'm assuming that if he's open to all these, whatever the MCM communications are, he has to be able to read what's coming in on the uh, on the teletype. So he must have seen stuff going back and forth about, yeah, we got to order up a 712 and, and we're going to be blowing up a town. Um, 
why would he well I, I guess it's for the purposes of the script i mean we pull back to yeah this is what the screenplay needed him to do but i didn't think he'd be as he didn't need to be as mouthy as he is to uh dr stone and that's what i couldn't figure out so walt i'm gonna go to you since this seems like something you'd do <laughs> let's go to the resident smart aleck and get his opinion on this what, wait, what, what, do you, what did you get out of this because the whole time I'm like first of all it seemed disrespectful but then I'm thinking from a filmmaking perspective am I getting anything from this what's the message from a scene like this oh, I, I can tell you what I can tell you exactly what's going on here um, number one this guy is probably what 45 between 45 and 50 yeah. He, he's probably on his last stop in his career. So he's he knows he's not, you know, he's not taking a promotion and going to the Pentagon. You know, so this is it. He and the doctor probably don't have the greatest relationship because the doctor's, you know, I mean, he is kind of a, he's a genius. He's not a great personality, but he is, uh, he's a brilliant guy. And so I could see the two of these guys, you know, these two guys going back and forth at each other. And this guy is kind of that proverbial military smart aleck. And you're, you're right, he's probably a little over the top, but he's probably also sick and tired of this guy being such a, um, you know, such an, you know, probably arrogant well, you say that, but has he ever, do we get any indication he's ever been here before? Not here, but you have to assume a backstory to it. And okay, Well, yeah, you're making up one that doesn't make sense, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, Stone, I, I, Stone, has to, Stone has to have been there before. I mean, he must right. have built this place, right? So Yeah, maybe. and I, I'd say they maybe have a history that caused that. Or, maybe, okay, you know, he, I mean, oh, fine, you're talking me into it only a little bit, but I just remember when he was called from the party, it was almost like, oh, we're finally going to use the place. Like it's almost like he doesn't show up there to me. I got, I got the sense that this is for real now. Well, and so maybe I, he's gone I got through the, inspections, but yeah, I got the sense that you know Stone, of course, was very intimately familiar with everything here, but so is this guy, but for two different reasons. You know, one of them is that he is kind of the guy who's pushing buttons, and the other one is the guy who's bossing around the people who are pushing the buttons. I'm wondering if the sergeant was demoted. Like he used to, maybe he was working mm. on Project Scoop, and he used to be, you know, like tracking satellites and stuff like that. And now it's like he screwed up somewhere, and now he's stuck in a windowless office, uh, waiting for a bell to go dingaling. And uh, <laughs> you know, this is his this is his kind of punishment. It's like, okay, you're either going to be working here, or we're going to send you to Kingman, Arizona, down the road, and you can you can uh, post guard over all the uh, broken airplanes that are out in the out in the desert in the boneyard. Um, it's it, I, I do I do get the feeling just from their interactions that that they have a past. Um, Stone and Dutton are both uh, are both familiar with wildfire. Dutton when he's driving out there with. Uh, uh, with Dr. Levitt, he's explaining about putting in uh, potholes and uh, the heavy equipment that passed through. So I think Dutton may have been like the construction supervisor, while Stone was kind of the architect of what he wanted out there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very, it's very, and now with Levitt, uh, Levitt may have had like uh, peripheral uh, setups with uh, with the labs and things. And of course, we we already know that Hall has no contact and never read all the top secret uh, dossiers that that Stone had been sending to him to keep up to date. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think that would be the hierarchy. It, it would be Stone, Dutton, Levitt, and then way down the list, uh, Hall. But I think maybe Dutton. I'd be interested to see Dutton and Dutton's expression, which I really haven't watched in this. But I was just wondering if Dutton has any actions like he's seen all this happen before. I was looking at it in the background, and I couldn't tell. If anything, they just were looking sort of, okay, we're just going to stand here with a little uncomfortable look because we don't know why they're going after each other. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, Dutton, Dutton's got a raised eyebrow. Like, what are you, nuts? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're right. He does have that one little cocked eyebrow, the left eye looking up like, he does, and mom he, and dad are fighting again. Yep, and he throws him a look <laughs> on the way out of the room. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Levitt, of course, my favorite character, Ruth Levitt, uh, she never – she never has a very pleased expression about anything. It's like, okay, more of this stuff going on. Yeah, this is real, really why I, why I got into this business. And everything to her is an inconvenience, just like the when they take her glasses. She's yeah. like, why are you doing that? Well, we got to do this. Oh, great. Well, then if you don't give them back, I'm going to have to walk with a white cane. You know, she's always kind of got that uh, extra little thing going. What I love about her, we didn't get a chance to talk about it last minute, but we'll if we can sure the addition of making this character a female which even robert wise initially had to be talked into it by the screen uh, the, the screenplay writer uh because he thought it would just make it for a little bit better dynamic he was initially like ah the only time we have females in sci-fi is like raquel welsh or something you know and he's like no 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 no, not in the real world we wanted this to look real and i think it's probably one of the better moves uh to to make her a a female character and she plays it in such a way that she is, one, I think, the most interesting character to watch in this whole movie. Yeah, yeah, I think she's definitely no bones about anything. A lot of people talk about science fiction, women in science fiction, and they say that the breakout character was Sigourney Weaver's uh, Ripley in uh, in Alien, but this one beats her, beats it by a whole by a whole decade. She is she's treated as an equal. She uh, solves many of the problems of the movie. She stand, she stands up for herself in every uh, argument and and debate, and she's also you know, not just being an iconoclast. She points out um, the hollowness out of a lot of the uh, platitudes that Stone spouts. So she's a really good counter. And the idea of writing it as a man's part originally, and the only thing you change is the uh, the sex of the character, is perfect. She really it's brilliant stuff and you know despite you know you, you want to give credit to robert wise but he had to be talked into it i think the brilliance of the casting director and getting uh, uh ruth levitt as as the character is just stunning well and of course One this of things- character comes in 71 on the heels of ahura on star trek who broke all kinds of barriers not just the female barrier but also the african-american um barrier so it's interesting to see this kind of in that the time frame of what else was going on in American history and the changes that were uh, that were going on and how sci-fi really did a pretty good job of keeping up with the, the changes in culture. Yeah. Or, or yeah. even if not even the changes, projecting the changes they wish were happening faster. Oh, true. Good point. Yeah, and she's not she's not in a skin tight latex suit like uh, exactly. like Raquel Welch was. She's she's here. She's dressed. She's she's dressed like like many people are dressed now. And you know, it's like like you rolled out of bed and put on, put on whatever was clean and uh, and headed into work. And um, you know what I love about it? Well, I showed my my oldest daughter not that long ago. She, we, she had never seen the original Rocky, and so it was on. I was like, you know what? I'm already up late. I, I can stay up another ninety minutes or so. It's not a very long movie. Do you want to watch it? And she said, Yeah, I've never seen it. 
we got to the like two thirds of the way through, and she said, "You know what I'm loving about this movie? It feels like real people. They're not Hollywood actors. They're not all made up. They feel real." And I feel the same way with this. Like they've cast people that are you can relate to them as real people, not made up, not buxom, not, you know, wearing, like you said, the, for the female, having to wear the tight outfit with the obligatory topless scene or something. It's, it's real, and we don't have to worry about all of that other garbage. We can tell an actual story that has nothing to do with all of the titillating elements that you're supposed to see in a 70s movie. Yeah, agree. Yeah, she just, and she is, gosh, I mean, she, she could be a role model, but she wasn't presented as a role model. She's just one of the other you know cast members who has another character and the and watching the other uh characters in the movie respect her is just such a it's such a great uh feeling of where yeah you know, where the changes were were going i mean i i think that uh movies reflect maybe if not the reality but at least their aspirations and i felt this felt very aspirational in the movie you know, the other thing I do like about her character is I know it was written initially with the idea that the book was a man, but I know the screenwriter wanted to change it to a female. And I don't know if he tweaked some of the lines or not, but what I will say is she never dives down into what I would think would be, okay, it's a woman pretending to be a man because she has to do that to live in a man's world. You know, yeah. I don't get the sense it's a stock kind of you know, two-dimensional character. She's very real. She's just a no-nonsense scientist who's you know, appear to these folks and they recognize each other as peers for what they're good at. Yeah, and, and I think all that rests on Kate Reed's shoulders. Kate Reed uh, is a consummate actress uh, and who really, she sells this so well. And as you were saying, she, you, be, you believe in her and you, when you find yourself rooting for characters, I just, you, every time she opens her mouth and says something, you're like, yeah, you tell them. Uh, it's, it's just, yeah, and, and she's also very much, I mean, we're, the organizing sensibility in this movie is supposed to be the James Olsen character, Dr. Hall, uh, because he doesn't, he doesn't know anything that's going on in wildfire. So he, he has to have everything explained to him, but really Dr. Levitt is the character that if you were presented with the things that they were presenting you in this movie, if you, if you were that character, that would probably be your reaction, you know, an eye roll and go, really, you want to do this now? You want to, you know, it, it's, just, just little things. I mean, in a couple of minutes, she'll be um, not properly placing the uh, fencing helmet back in the container and stuff like that. It's just like she just seems very, um, very, very much uh, wrapped up in trying to solve the problem and getting around all the uh, procedural nonsense that's keeping her from getting stuff done. So I, I know we're getting, and I know you have to keep an eye on the time, but we, I wanted to get one piece of dialogue in. Sure. Because they go to the to the locker room, which this is the time where I always go, okay, this is now feeling a little 70s sci-fi. We're all going to put people in red spacesuit-looking outfits or red out, you know, just why wouldn't it be lab coats still? You're in a research facility, but okay, whatever. But they have this comment that goes flying by, and I wondered if anybody thought to look it up or know what it was talking about from Crichton's book, the odd man hypothesis, and using the odd man hypothesis to refer to Levitt, who's a female. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it, I, I don't know if, you know, he's using odd man as the uh, uh, man being the generic uh, idea. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a future minute when they go over what uh, Robertson's odd man hypothesis is. Oh, okay, I didn't know if you wanted to, because he says it in this yeah. minute. Yeah, I mean, he talks about the odd man, which is interesting that they introduce it here. Um, 
and uh, uh, it almost goes by if you don't think about it. Like, well, wait, wait, what's what? Why would you say that? What's the odd man hypothesis, right? Yeah, um, but it's something yeah. Crichton kind of made up. Yeah, and 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 he and he talked about like in an earlier minute when they're in the helicopter. Uh, he's, you know, why did you pick me? He said, well, you know, you're uh, you're a doctor and you're single, and so. Uh, uh, Mark Mark Hall drops the line. Well, he goes, I didn't, you know, I didn't read any of yours. Didn't you, he said, hadn't you read all those studies I've sent you? And he said, I don't believe in science fiction. And and Stone said, No, I don't either. You know, no, nor do I. So uh, I think this is leading up that they, it's it's Chekhov's shotgun. They keep, you know, they keep. That first they mention that he's single. Then they mention. Then he's mentioning the odd man hypothesis, which they haven't talked about, which he says here. Uh, so that's obviously leading up to get ready for the next exhibition minute that's coming up in a few, <laughs> few minutes, and we'll talk about why what the odd man hypothesis is. And it gets down to the point where Levitt is reading you the definition of you know Crichton, what Crichton wants to believe is the is the odd man hypothesis. I do think when you know what it is, it's ironic that they're talking about her yeah. specifically with that phrase because I don't think it's man generic like mankind. I really th- truly believe the hypothesis is about. An unmarried man. So yeah, yeah, that's that that's where that's where it is, and we'll we'll, we'll be getting to that in a in a future minute. All right, I, I won't pop any more of that balloon. No, just no, now. no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Alan, you're the worst. You know, I freaking took the notes and I read and I researched and I, you know, I should have just done like you. I just showed up. I, it's, it's a joke. I know Walt watched the movie because he and I were talk, texting back and forth about it, but. Damn, sorry. <laughs> I won't take it serious next time. Did you guys both watch this when you were kids? I don't know where 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 we didn't talk about that in the previous minute. But usually, I bring that up. But uh, where was your first experience with the Andromeda Strain? All right. So for me, in high school, I had to take a couple of extra classes just because I had. I was one of those kids who just took so many classes. I just loved taking stuff, and we had optional classes. And so, rather than take art or something like that, I took a class in genetics that was being offered for the first time. And this is high school, right? So I'm like wow. taking a genetics class. I think it's awesome. We start talking about cloning and, and, and viruses and all the stuff to do with genes and gene splicing. And the teacher was like, you're asking a lot of these questions. I'm like, cause I'm a sci-fi geek and everybody's laughing at me at the time. So um, I just remember she said, well, you might like, and she gave me a book that was called son of none, which was a story about a person cloned. Well, who's his mom? Who's his dad? If he's cloned, he's a son of nobody. And then she says, if you like this, you might want to try out this other book that's not that old. Of course, at the time, uh, Michael Crichton's uh, uh, Andromeda Strain. So I read the book first, and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go check this movie out because I want to see it. And so I actually read the book first and then watched the movie, but it was in high school. So this would have been about the late late 80s, probably like 80, 87 or 88. Wow. Um, and what, where, did you, where did you run into yours? The first time I saw it was probably in middle school, so it would have been 79, 80, somewhere right in there. Um, my dad was watching it on TV, and I remember sitting down and watching it and really getting into it once I realized what was going on, that, you know, that they're trying to fight this this virus, and, you know, I didn't understand a lot of the science to it, but it kind of captured my imagination and i know that somewhere late in middle school or early in high school i read the book and i maybe understood half of it (laughs) but i I at least i enjoyed the book and i I really should go back and reread it now that i would would understand a lot more of it but um i I just remember being fast i've always been into sci-fi and stuff but just being fascinated 
thinking about a virus coming from outer space and how we would deal with that. You know, one I, of the things I can tell you about this particular story and then finding a love of Michael Crichton's writing, not realizing this was, I didn't know anything about who Michael Crichton was. You know, ER, oh, from the, from the mind of Michael Crichton, here's ER. They were one of the biggest TV shows on NBC. And then you start paying attention. Then as, you know, 93 rolls around, you're like, oh, Steven Spielberg is going to bring Michael Crichton's latest book, Jurassic Park, to the, th- to, the, to the big screen. So then I started going back. And this guy, what I love about Crichton is he would have an idea based on where technology was going. Right. And somehow always managed to find a fictional story that he could tell asking what if, but in a, such a plausible way, you get done with the book and go, holy crap, that could really happen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, it's so, it, it seems so likely, like you could see something like this getting reported on in Nature Magazine or just some little item in a newspaper going, oh, if this is what, you know, what it's, yeah. it, it's so believable that, yeah, I could, it, it's, it's a stretch in, in different directions, but he always leaves you within the realm of the possible. Um, I I was amazed. This was you know this was his first film, and uh, I saw this when I was a kid when it was in the movie theater, and I had previously read the book. Um, my friends of my mom's had all been reading it the previous summer. They'd all read the book, and it was it was around everywhere you went to somebody's house. There was a paperback of uh, the Andromeda Strain, and I read it before seeing the movie. Um, I was just astonished at how close it held to the book. I mean, it it really captured the look and feel of what was going on in the book because there's so much there's like found documents and things it's, it's almost like the warren commission report when you're reading uh the andromeda strain with all the little um exhibits oh, i thought the coolest thing and he's done this in many books since is he created a fake bibliography to make it look like these were actual events that he was reporting on yes yes exactly exactly and it's just it it's so it it feels like you're watching a um it's almost like an escape room thing where you're just picking up all these clues and, and there's stuff that's in that that's in his books that you feel like, yeah, okay, this is other, th- you know, this, this seems real because there's other, there's other pointers that say this is real. Um, but I know we're running a little bit late on this minute, but one thing I would just want to point before we leave the uh, scene in the locker room of, from a technical point of view, I am amazed at the lighting, the lighting. If you, if you look at the way that that room is set up, it's so hard it's so hard to light a, a large room like that for uh, for film cameras, but they managed to do it through that slot in the ceiling, and uh, just it, what looks like maybe some uh, some f- uh, small floods on the backside of the of the locker room that that shine up into the ceiling, but just gorgeous realistic lighting that you can you can feel it as being you know this is how it would be lit in that building. I'm, I'm just very impressed the, the way that they managed to keep. Uh, you know any kind of specular lights out of the way just a little technical thing but just a beautiful idea of the kind of crew that robert wise could put together for his movies yeah you know and along that technical i I didn't mention it last minute he likes these low camera angles at this as we're getting into this facility yeah yeah it it kind of it it accentuates uh that you're indoors and it's showing showing ceilings i mean robert wise was familiar with stuff back you know back to the uh to citizen kane days being able to use the ceiling as part of the scene uh, it really, it, it, it's kind of, uh, it gives you a sense of depth, but also kind of a sense of claustrophobia that you're, you're locked down. I was about to say the same thing, Jim, that, that is through the, throughout the whole movie, from the time they get into this facility, you feel like you're underground the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think as, uh, as Alan was pointing out that the low angles make you feel very insignificant or very, uh, 
out of out of control. You're you're no you're nowhere in the league with these guys. You can't you know you, you're they're the big thinkers. Although those those chairs that they're sitting on to me always look like something out of Land of the Giants, and they're just giant thumbtacks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, um, for folks who who just tuned in on us, where can people find you on online? And you also have a a, a regular radio presence too that we should talk about. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lead with that. Uh, we do a podcast called The Wilder Ride. It is uh, Movies by Minutes, at least seasons one and two, where we break down films of Gene Wilder very much like this, where we take one minute of one of Gene Wilder's movies at a time. We did Young Frankenstein season one. We did Blazing Saddles season two. We are mixing things up in our third season where we're doing more of a uh, a guest-driven lounge. We were. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the movies by minutes again for another another season. But I have a background in radio. I started off in radio about twenty, gosh, twenty years ago now, uh, doing just a Saturday show initially, just sort of you know talking about whatever's current events. And about thirteen years ago, so about seven years after getting my feet wet into just one day a week, was asked if I wanted to move up to hosting the morning news program for a smaller. Uh, what we call a double A station in in the southeast, and so that's six to nine a.m. every morning. It's introducing. I'm not part of the news team. I introduce the news. So it's like, hey, welcome everybody. Here's your weather. Here's your traffic. Here's your first story. And let's come on back. And if there's a guest, which one of the things I do love is the guest interviews. And so I learned how to interview guests. I learned how to analyze topics. I learned how to bring things up in a way that. Hopefully, what I like to try to do is take the complex and make it understandable. Whether you agree or disagree, at least we can try to level set and, and create an understanding. And that caught the ear of, uh, of a talk radio host in Atlanta on the one of the biggest, in fact, the number one radio station in Atlanta, WSB. It's a talk station. And now I am a permanent fill-in. I have been doing that for about five years now. Uh, for things like presidential candidate, former presidential candidate Herman Cain when he was a talk host, uh, syndicated talk host uh, Eric Erickson and others. So I'm just privileged to be able to say someone thinks it's worth listening to me. Uh, I, nobody else around me thinks that way, but <laughs> I've, got the, I've got the other audience fooled. Yeah, I'm sorry. I kind of tuned you out there. What were you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I set that on a tee for you. <laughs> well, you know, Alan, actually, I do listen a, a decent amount uh, – to your morning show. And one of the segments that you do that I have turned a bunch of people onto is on Tuesday morning, you have a gentleman from the Smithsonian uh, come in and talk about the history of the West. And that has been one of my favorite things on any radio show for quite a while. That is fun. Uh, it's it's the not the Smithsonian. It's our Smithsonian affiliate. They're, they're an affiliate of the Smithsonian, the Booth Western Art Museum. But yeah, we do that one we do the week. You know how we do these movies by minutes? We do this week in Western history, and we look at everything that happened in the actual week of the month that we're in, and it's so much fun. That's a great show. It is, I've, I've listened to many of them, and it's uh, the best way to describe it is endlessly fascinating. It's it, you will walk away saying, "I didn't know that. Wow! I gotta, I gotta go look." And the the, the downside is every time I'm listening to you, I have to, I have to go run off to uh, the internet and start l- l- googling up all the things that you guys talk about. <laughs> I know I've ended up buying several books because of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've often said if if the, someone would step up and and fund a a standalone podcast, I think Jim Dunham could just talk for an hour and a half straight, and you'd never lose interest. So. My job is just to keep it rolling and keep them on time because we could we could very easily miss a break and go past the schedule. But uh, it's so much fun. 
It is. It's, it's, it's a great show. I can strongly recommend. Um, for folks who'd like to reach out to us on social media, if you've got some things to, to talk about with uh, Andromeda in a minute, we're always interested in hearing you. Uh, please go to on uh, Facebook, find us at uh, Project Wildfire or on, um, what do they call it? The Twitter, Twitter at uh, Andromeda Minute, just like the name. Uh, AndromedaMinute.com is where you can find all your previous episodes of this show. There's 41 of them out there right now. And you can also find them on podcasts. Uh, podcasters everywhere like Spotify, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. Uh, join us here as we end the week on Friday, and we'll be, uh, I, I think Dr. Stone should have his socks on by then, so we'll go do a little bit more uh, uh, discussions and exposition. But uh, in the meantime, please stay six feet apart, wear your mask, and uh, let's get through this uh, plague as soon as possible. Thanks yeah, for don't listening. be a dingling. Yes, please, don't be a dingling. <laughs> yes, please don't. Oh, gosh. Well, we'll see you here next time on the Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.